I will remind you that um, if you hear some noise from children, just remember that that is the next generation of saints, and that is a good thing. Um, I was asked uh, by one curious child this morning, how long is your sermon going to be? And she just said what many of you were thinking, you know, so I, I, you know, anyway, so we're in John chapter six, verse 29, and then I'm going to jump to Matthew chapter two. I did tell her this. I said, if you're paying attention, it'll be much shorter. <laughs> I don't know if she believes me or not. Okay. But if you pay attention, if you're taking notes, it does go by a little bit quicker. Um, as we think about John chapter six, verse 29, Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So we're in the Gospel of John. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. And one of the things that you need to know about the Gospel of John, that it's all about believing, that you might believe in Jesus, the Son of Man, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the book. So the purpose of the book that John is writing is so that every sign, every discourse, every event that happens within the Gospel of John is there so that we might believe more fully, believe more deeply, to trust more. That's what's going on in the Gospel of John. Now, if I think about this, I think about the Christmas story, and I think about those who had a deep and abiding faith, even though um, it's, it's a miraculous story. As a matter of fact, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, we read of no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. And he's speaking about the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. Now, this is very interesting as um, we think about this, because when you think about this, there's four Gospels, right? There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew um, is, is significant. Well, uh, first of all, Mark, we don't hear anything about the birth of Jesus. He just jumps right into, John, uh, right into John the Baptist and the coming, and it says immediately, immediately, immediately. It's, like, it's almost like Mark's in a hurry you know, to get done with what he has to say. It's the shortest Gospel. It's the most succinct. In the Gospel of John, uh, the book that we're working our way through, uh, we really don't have the, the story of the birth of Jesus. We find the birth of Jesus in two Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke. But it's interesting as you juxtapose Matthew and Luke with one another. For example, Luke speaks about the shepherds and the shepherds coming and the shepherds seeing the star uh, in Luke chapter two. Matthew never mentions shepherds at all. Not at all. Matthew mentions the wise man, the wise men, and we see that these wise men come from the east, they bring gifts to Jesus of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but Luke never talks about it. So you have these two different perspectives, right? Now they're both true, and they're both giving us um, interesting details to build a case and a story that they're telling. Now in Matthew, we read this. In Matthew chapter two, two verses one through 12, um, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now I want you to see this in this narrative. I want you to see that Jesus has come into the world to move the world. Like Jesus comes, and when we think about Elizabeth and Zechariah, he, tries, he takes the barren and he makes them fruitful. In the midst of Mary, he takes the lowborn. You know, Mary, who is, has the most, one of the most common names in the, in the Jewish people then, you know, this unmarried virgin, and he takes this one who is nobody and he makes her somebody. He makes her high. And then when he, he takes Herod the Great, or Herod the King, and he takes Herod and diminishes him. You see, Jesus, when he comes, is moving the world. He's moving the world, and he's placing the world underneath his um, authority and rule. You see, as he takes King Herod and he diminishes him, he also takes these Gentiles, these wise men, these advisors to the king, and they worship him. Now, it's thought, Origen, uh, one of the early church fathers, believed that these wise men actually came from Babylon, that they're coming from the east. Now, if you're a Jew and you're Matthew, you, this is what you're saying. Is the place of the greatest torment of the Jewish people comes those who will worship the king first. In the Gospel of Matthew, the ones who worship Jesus first are the Magi. They are the wise men. Now in Luke, I mean, we're not doing a sequential order of all the Bible, but in Matthew, what he's trying to do here is he's saying that the most unlikely people on the planet are the ones who find the star and they come and they worship at Jesus' feet, offering the very best that they have. Think about this. Babylon was the place of exile, but in the midst of this exile, these magi, these wise men, and some people, some commentators would actually say these, these wise men were sort of you know, a cross between astrologers and astronomers because they see a star and they see something going on in the heaven and what their thoughts were is what we see in the heavens is manifesting itself out there in the world some way with significance. And that is true with regard to the star. But the Magi are also thought to be people who are uh, maybe a cross between, I don't know, like Harry Potter and David Copperfield too, right? You know, I mean, that's kind of where they are. If you don't know those names, that's okay. Uh, you know, so, so the guys who are, who are just struggling to, to, to believe, and yet Matthew, think about this, Matthew takes the most unlikely individuals probably on the planet coming from Babylon where the, where the Jews were exiled, and they, in the, in the midst of darkness. Now, if you're a Jew, you're thinking Babylon is the darkest place ever, spiritually. 
And these people, and these magi, and we don't know how many there were, there were some, somewhere between two and I don't know. You know, I mean, that, that's what we know. We think oftentimes of three uh, because they bring three gifts. But these magi come. Now, I want you to think about this. These wise men, they heard a promise about the king of the Jews. Now, where did they hear this promise about the king of the Jews? Well, they heard about it in Babylon. Why would they hear something like that in Babylon? Because when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, the the wise men were getting stories from the Jews. And so these wise men say that there will come a day, and, and if you're a Jew and you're in exile and you're, you're a wise man and you're trying to figure out what is significant, what is significant about your religion? What is significant about you know, how you view the world? And if you're a Jew, you're gonna talk, talk about how God made the world and how he made the world perfect, and it was good. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read about that, how God created the world in six days and everything that he created was good. Some things were very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. But then, when everything went wrong was in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin entered in. And when sin entered in, everything became distorted and bent and twisted. And that's why we have conflict. That's why we have relational discord. That's why we have wars. That's why we have sickness. That's why we have famine. That's why we have all of these problems. That's why we have people pushing people down. That's why we have people you know, um, being you know, prideful. That's why we have people yearning. And that's why we have anxiety and anger and addiction. All of these things happen from, because of and are spawned from Genesis 3. And if you're a Jew... Um, and you're a wise man, you're like, well, how does your God, how is your God going to work all of these things out? And if you think about it, it happens in Genesis 12 where Abraham, um, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to give you descendants as far as the, you know, as many as the stars in the heaven or the sands on the seashore. And in you and in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, when the Magi come from Babylon and they come to Jerusalem, they are working itself out in Ephesians chapter 2. Think about this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, you know, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, circ- the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we were. By the way, got any Gentiles today? Anybody here a Gentile? You know, apparently not. Okay, all right, so... Just so you know, if you didn't raise your hand, you're probably a Gentile, okay? We're, we're, we're all Gentiles for the most part. That's what we're saying here. But in verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility He's basically saying this. He's saying all that hostility that the Jews have with Babylon, Jesus has broken it down. And by the way, Matthew, the the gospel writer says this, in the most inexplicable way, the ones who come to worship Jesus first are these magician-like wise men who travel 650 miles from Babylon on foot or with camel or whatever it is. Whatever it is, it's not the interstate, okay? It's not K-10, 
I mean, these guys are taking a long time with a lot of valuable assets, and they're traveling 650 miles to visit Jesus. It took some time. Now, when you juxtapose that, in the midst of Matthew chapter 2, we see a couple other characters. You see, you know, Herod. Herod, now, just so you know, Bethlehem is about five miles away from Jerusalem. Herod didn't go to Bethlehem. Herod didn't go five miles. The wise men went 650 miles to lay their gifts at the feet of Jesus. It's an astounding, an astounding act of faith. Now, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And when we read in the context of all that they have done, it is an amazing act of faith. And what, is, what makes it so great is who did what? Who worships the king of the Jews? Does Herod? No. The earthly king of the Jews? How about the Jewish scribes and chief priests? Do they worship Jesus? No. Do all the Jews in all Jerusalem? No. But how about those Gentiles from Babylon who are not from the promised land? Do they bow down in homage? Do they, in essence, kiss the sun? Yes, they do. (laughs) What is Matthew doing with this fact? What is the importance of, of who received Jesus With the wise men, Matthew is echoing what the angel of the Lord said to the shepherds in Luke 2. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the kingdom of heaven is wide enough to accept Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, the seemingly righteous and knowingly unrighteous. This king is for you you lowly Jewish shepherds, you wealthy Gentile pilgrims. Not only that, we see in the midst of this, we see this fulfillment of prophecy. God fulfills this promise. You know, in the book of Isaiah, chapter two, we read in in chapter two, then the word of the Lord, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And, And listen to this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All the nations will flow. And what they're saying is not necessarily you know, a place like Jerusalem, but they will flow to Jesus. They will flow to this new temple who is known as Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Or in Isaiah chapter 60, why do they bring what they brought? Well, in Isaiah chapter 60, verse one, we read this. It says, arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephath, all those from Sheba shall come. And get this, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now think about that. <laughs> that is remarkable. You know, in, in John Milton's On the Morning of Christ's Nativity, he calls them, these wise men, the star-led wizards. And I think that's pretty close to the truth. And they come and they worship the king. Now, as we think about this scandalous scene, this depicts these men, these Gentile wealthy uh, advisors to the king, it's a scandalous scene if you're a Jew because how can these Gentiles worship the king? But it's a beautiful, scandalous scene. This scene depicts so perfectly the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. The good news is for all people, even the least likely of God's, even the least likely candidates for God's love. Like scrap metal to a magnet, the good news draws a hodgepodge of fallen humanity. Samaritan adulterers, immoral prostitutes, greasy tax collectors on the take, despised Roman soldiers, ostracized lepers, and maybe even me and you. That's what this story tells us. Then they come and they, they give their very best. And just like we did in the children's sermon, uh, I want us to think about this. How do we give our best to Jesus today with our time and our talent and our treasure. Yeah, I, I love that um, you guys are here this morning for, on Christmas Day. It's, it's a beautiful thing in the midst of the family of God coming because we give our very best. I mean, really, where you are at 10 or 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, that's the best that you have to offer, the best time of the week, and you come and you offer it as worship to the Lord. That's what we do. That's one way that we can offer a gift. But I also want us to think about it in this way. Is there anything in your life that you value more than Jesus? And if you do, I'm gonna encourage you to think about Jesus all the more. I don't want you to, um, you know, not think about what it was you were thinking about or what you have, something that has value, but I want you to value Jesus all the more. You see, Jesus being this unlikely, this surprise that came to the world, he moved the world. And it was amazing. Let me finish with this story. I love this story. I just heard this yesterday. I thought it was just so fitting about the surprise of the world. Jesus shows up and surprises the world similar to this. Uh, in 1983, elite distance runners from around the world met in Australia 
to compete in a week-long 544-mile ultramarathon from Sydney to Melbourne. It sounds like something Bob Woods would want to do. It's crazy. It's crazy that we let him deal with money. But, you know, 544-mile ultramarathon, okay. The racers were lean and mean professional athletes decked from head to toe in the most expensive gear by Nike, Asics, and Puma, all except for Cliff Young. Cliff Young was a 61-year-old shepherd in his overalls and work boots. He'd even removed his dentures for the race because he said they rattled. When the gun sounded, the runners leapt from the line and quickly left Cliff far behind as he shuffled along. At the end of the first day, the pack was miles ahead when the runners stopped to get a few hours of sleep. But nobody told Cliff he was supposed to stop and rest. So while the other racers slept, Cliff ran through the night. You see, Cliff was a poor shepherd who couldn't afford a horse or all-terrain vehicle. When storms rolled in on his 2,000-acre farm and his sheep needed to be gathered in, he would herd them on foot, running for days on end. Nobody knew that when the race began. But everybody knew it when the race ended because after five days of continuous running, Cliff shuffled across the finish line in first place, shattering the previous course record by two days. It was a stunning upset, a thrilling reversal that made the world stop and stare and wonder. You see, thrilling reversal is what Christmas is all about. God insists on showcasing his power through weakness and his wisdom through foolishness so that we would stop and stare and wonder and worship. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that we would stop and stare and wonder and worship. And that today we would give you our best. Father, deepen our love. Grow our faith. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would love so much that we want to tell others about Jesus. Father, surprise us this day by giving us opportunities to share the gospel with those who don't know. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.